Friends, we are beginning a new sermon series uh, this week. It's going to go for about eight weeks, about two months, and it's on the tough questions, the big questions that we face as Christians, or some of the big worldview questions that we want to explore. It's the first time we've kind of done a series like this. Often we, we go through a book of the Bible, we preach sort of expositionally through the passages, and in this uh, series we're going to be obviously going through some scriptures, but we want to also address some of the key questions that we face, uh, especially as believers uh, in this time in our world. And so the first question we're going to be asking that we're going to be exploring today is the question of what makes us so sure that God exists? What, what, do, we, what do we found this belief in? I used to be really kind of nervous about sharing my faith. Uh, and it's still sometimes I get a little bit anxious when someone's sort of asking me about it or I, I, want, I need to tell something maybe a little more personal. I, I'm a little less so now, but I remember not knowing really how to talk about why I believe what I believe. And there's, there's these questions that we as Christians sometimes hope no one will ask us <laughs> if we're honest, right? And so we're going to look at some of those questions uh, in this series. I'm really indebted to, to Mark uh, Mittelberg and his book, which is actually called 10 Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. And I've adopted some of his material for this, uh, for this teaching series. So I really recommend Mark's book to you. I'm also indebted to some fantastic apologetics uh, authors and scholars like Dr. Ravi Zacharias and Dr. William Lane Craig. And what I've, what I've done, because this is not really my area of expertise, though I think it's really important for us as Christians to, to dive into this. I've interspersed with my teaching some videos by these guys um, and, and girls that will really uh, help flesh out, I think, some of these conversations. Now, you may ask, why do this? Why does this matter? I think it's important that part of our mission as Christians is to be able to give a reason, to give a, an account or an answer for why we believe what we believe. And that's why I wanted to read for us what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, where he said, we destroy arguments, which is a little bit strong, but, but his point is we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And I want I want you to think about that for a second. What Paul is saying here is that we want to, we, first we want to understand the questions that are out there and, and engage with them and also to be able to respond well to them. And of course with this is, is a matter of responding with love, helping point people to the truth, doing that thoughtfully and um, gracefully but being willing to engage with the arguments and the lofty opinions, as Paul puts it, that are raised against the knowledge of God, taking our own thoughts captive to Christ and, and seeking to be obedient to him. And so I want us to start there. What does it mean to argue our faith? And maybe that's not the best term, but the moments where we end up engaging with people and, uh, and it can be difficult. And to maybe talk about that a little bit, I want to go to this first clip by Dr. William Lane Craig. Watch with me. It's been said many times that no one has ever been argued into the kingdom of God. Well, I like my colleague J.P. Moreland's response to this objection when he hears it. He says, that's false. I've done it. He's argued people into the kingdom of God by giving them good 
apologetic arguments for God's existence and his self-revelation in Jesus. So the statement, which is sort of conventional wisdom, is just demonstrably false. Now, in saying that, of course, please understand that one does not mean that when one presents arguments for God's existence, one is working apart from the Holy Spirit. Rather, it means that one is trusting the Holy Spirit to use your arguments as you lovingly present them to draw people to himself. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, our arguments would fall like water on a stone. But in the same way that we can trust the Holy Spirit to use preaching to draw people to himself, we can trust the Holy Spirit to use argumentation and evidence when persuasively presented to draw people to himself. So today's question is, what makes you so sure that God exists? I don't, I don't see God. Where is he? Why believe in him? And in our kids' talk, we, we talked a little bit about how God is invisible, like air, right? Even when we, we can't see air, um, we can't really feel air unless it's, it's windy out. We, can, we can't really hear it, um, but we know it's there. We see the evidence of the air around us, even though it's invisible. And the idea is God is similar. God is immaterial. John 4, 24 says God is spirit, but that doesn't mean we don't experience him at all. In fact, our own personal experience does matter when talking about why we believe in God. We have to give an account for what's happened in our lives because of Jesus. And one of the ways that uh, we know God is, is active in our world is, is to say, well, he is real and active in my own life. We have to give reason for why millions of people over the centuries uh, having the same sort of experience of the personal Christian God. We experience his forgiveness. We experience his guidance, his voice in our lives, his, his love in our lives. And so our testimony can be a, an important part of witnessing and of, of exploring with people why we believe in God. People ideally will notice and see what God has done in our lives. Even if they can't see him, something should mark uh, an account for the, the behavioral changes, the profound changes that happen uh, in disciples of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, um, your life should look differently than how you were living before you were following Jesus, right? He's transforming us as we abide in him, uh, renewing our minds, sanctifying us by his grace. Paul actually goes this route when explaining his transformation to listeners in Acts 26. God was the reason for his change from murdering Christians to joining the cause, right? And willing to follow Jesus. What accounts for that? What situations occurred that actually made him so profoundly change his belief system and do a whole 180 and now go from, go from persecution to now willing to be persecuted? So personal testimony can be powerful, and many of you, I'm sure, have had opportunities to talk about how God has moved in your life, or, or, or maybe you're a seeker today, you're listening to this, you're not really sure, but you've heard of people talking. You know Christians exist. You know there's people who think God exists. So what accounts for that? The fact is, though, personal testimony is, uh, is powerful, 
But many people will not be convinced by that alone, right? They may think, well, you're being very sincere that you think that's God, right? Um, but you're mistaking uh, your co- coincidences in your life or your feelings for God. So let's explore some of the other actual scientific evidence for God's existence. What I want to do is look first at a, at a cosmological argument for the existence of God, and then we're going to look at the moral argument. So these are sort of the scientific and a, and a more sort of philosophical argument for the existence of God. The first is the cosmological argument. This is the evid cosmos referring to the universe. This is evidence from the universe itself. And this is based on premises and conclusions. So the premises and conclusion kind of go like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. I'll say it again. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. So let's unpack that a little bit. Well, in 1915, Albert Einstein developed his, his general theory of relativity. And that theory, now almost universally uh, accepted, has some pretty interesting implications. One, of, one is that the, the universe, defined as space, time, matter, and physical energy, has a starting point in history. It's not eternal. It has not just forever existed as, as many philosophers and ancient thinkers uh, believed. But actually, uh, Einstein proved that the universe has a beginning. And using Einstein's equations, you can trace the development of the universe back to its origin, often called the singularity event, or sometimes referred to as the Big Bang. Now, lots of scientists, including Einstein, didn't really like this result. Right? Maybe because it sounded a little bit too much like creation. So they tried to find errors in the equation. They couldn't find any. The evidence pointed to the truth. And the evidence was clear. It was that the universe has not just always been, but it had a clear beginning. And if the universe has a starting point in history, obviously it began to exist. And if it began to exist, it must have had a cause for existence. And if the universe needs a cause to exist, that cause must be beyond the universe itself. It must be beyond space, beyond time, beyond matter, and beyond physical energy. In other words, the cause of there being something instead of nothing, this cause must be timeless, spaceless, immaterial, and immensely powerful, not unlike what we refer to as God. Now, some will say, well, that's great, but the cause may not be the Christian God. It could be something else. But against that, we can say this. We'll call him what you want, but the scientific evidence for the origin of the universe tells us a lot about what he is like. And that description sounds amazingly similar to what the Bible describes as one particular God, Yahweh, or Jesus Christ. Now, it's worth noting that some Christians respond uh, negatively to the idea of the Big Bang, but I don't think we actually really need to. In Genesis 1, we have God speaking and things suddenly coming into being, into existence. And so from a Christian perspective, the Big Bang actually sounds, or the singularity event, sounds a lot like a compelling description 
for God creating ex nihilo, or out of nothing. And now, which is really quite amazing, we live in a time where the scientific evidence points to the universe having a finite beginning. We can no longer say, well, the universe just always existed, therefore it needs no cause. No, we can say the universe had a very clear beginning. We can see that. And now we need to account for what began that beginning. That point is conceded even by atheists in the scientific community. So the science provides compelling evidence for the existence of God. This is the cosmological argument it's called. And here's the overview again. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. We can see that now in recent scientific advancements. Therefore, the universe itself has a cause. And then additionally, we go on to say the attributes of the cause of the universe, that it's outside of space, time, material, immensely powerful, are the attributes of God. Therefore, the cause of the universe must be God. Now, it's a bit of a side note. Some will argue here, well, if everything has a cause, then what caused God, right? But that's actually a misunderstanding of terms or a misunderstanding of the argument itself. It's not that everything has a cause, but that everything that has a beginning has a cause. So the universe needs a cause, but the immaterial, eternal God has no beginning and therefore does not need a cause. Think back to our Isaiah passage again with this, you know, just those thoughts regarding the origin of the universe. Isaiah 40, 25 to 26, right? To whom then will you compare me, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Just this sense that the, the immensity of our universe of creation, um, the brilliant complexity of it, which we'll talk about in just a moment, points itself to the existence of God. And, and to help us kind of capture that again regarding this cosmological argument, I'd like to draw your attention to this next video. Let's watch it together. Does God exist? Or is the material universe all that is, or ever was, or ever will be? One approach to answering this question is the cosmological argument. It goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Is the first premise true? Let's consider. Believing that something can pop into existence without a cause is more of a stretch than believing in magic. At least with magic you've got a hat and a magician. And if something can come into being from nothing, then why don't we see this happening all the time? No, everyday experience and scientific evidence confirm our first premise. If something begins to exist, it must have a cause. But what about our second premise? Did the universe begin, or has it always existed? Atheists have typically said that the universe has been here forever. The universe is just there, and that's all. First, let's consider the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us the universe is slowly running out of usable energy. 
and that's the point. If the universe had been here forever, it would have run out of usable energy by now. The second law points us to a universe that has a definite beginning. This is further confirmed by a series of remarkable scientific discoveries. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. This allowed us, for the first time, to talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe. Next, Alexander Friedman and George Lemaitre, each working with Einstein's equations, predicted that the universe is expanding. Then in 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the red shift in light from distant galaxies. This empirical evidence confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, but that it sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. It was a monumental discovery, almost beyond comprehension. However, not everyone is fond of a finite universe, so it wasn't long before alternative models popped into existence. But one by one, these models failed to stand the test of time. More recently, three leading cosmologists, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth and Alexander Vilenkin, prove that any universe which has on average been expanding throughout its history cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. This even applies to the multiverse, if there is such a thing. This means that scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Any adequate model must have a beginning, just like the standard model. It's quite plausible then that both premises of the argument are true. This means that the conclusion is also true. The universe has a cause. And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe. It must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused and unimaginably powerful. Much like God. The cosmological argument shows that, in fact, it is quite reasonable to believe that God does exist. Now, the second evidence I want to talk about this morning is in regards to the fine-tuning of the complexity of our universe. It's just the incredible array of life that we see around us exists only because of precisely balanced laws and variables. And we're talking incredibly, incredibly detailed. Uh, Michiho uh, Kaku, who's a theoretical physicist and futurist, he said this. He said, it's shocking. This is an atheist. He said, it's shocking to find how many of the familiar constants of the universe lie within a very narrow band that makes life possible. If a single one of these accidents, he calls them accidents, uh, were altered, uh, and we're talking about things like gravity and, and, and these sorts of, of constant laws and, and um, variables set so finely tuned, so specifically that without them life wouldn't exist. He goes on to say this, if a single one of these small fine-tuned things were altered slightly, stars would never form, the universe would fly apart, DNA would not exist, life as we know it would be impossible, the earth would flip over or freeze, and so on. And so it becomes more and more unlikely that all of these things just came into existence by chance. 
Paul Davies, who's an atheist and a leading physicist in our day, actually says this. He says, I cannot believe that our universe or that our existence in this universe is a mere quirk of fate. We are truly meant to be here. That's from an atheist. The simple point is this, folks. The universe is best explained by design rather than by chance. So we've looked at a couple of ways to talk about God's existence, our personal testimony, of course, but also these cosmological arguments, the existence of the universe, the complexity of the universe, uh, are grounded in logical premises that lead to a conclusion. I want to look at one other uh, argument for God's existence, which is called the moral argument. During uh, this whole COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen examples of, uh, you know, amazing examples of people helping each other, companies switching over to create uh, personal protective equipment, right, and uh, care for frontline medical workers and food banks and charities seeking to help the poor. And all, all sorts of examples of goodness and, and love going on in our world. And we go, that's brilliant. That's great. But why? Why are these actions uh, innately good or uh, helpful or loving? Why are they good? Why do we call those things good? Why do we call murder or theft or abuse evil? On what basis do we make that claim that something is right or wrong? Now, a naturalistic atheism perspective will say that there is no uh, objective um, moral values, no way of something being innately right or wrong objectively there's only subjective moral values that is we've we've decided as a society what things are right or or wrong so we could say well those things are good because as a society we've we've agreed that helping people live is is good um you may argue that point in the fact that we also condone abortion and euthanasia so do we always think that helping people is good Here's an example of, of how subjective moral reasoning can go sideways, though. If there was a culture, and this is Mark Middleberg's uh, from Mark, Mark's book, he says, if there was a culture in which men kept female slaves and beat them at will, we would be morally outraged if there were a culture that locked up black people for their color, or Jewish people for their heritage, or left-handed people for their differentness, we would decry these actions as moral abominations. We would do so on the grounds of moral values. We would say these things are innately wrong. But if there is no God, if there is no basis for objective morals, then we can't impose our morals on another culture. We can't say objectively that those acts are wrong. And therein lies the danger. What happens when a, when a society does decide it is in their best interest to kill the weak and kill the vulnerable, etc. There's actually no objective grounding to say they're morally wrong, only to say they're different from the other culture. But the truth is we, we know that's crazy. We actually do know that things are objectively wrong. We know that murder and rape and bigotry and racism are, are actually evil. They actually are wrong. It's not just a matter of tradition or custom or preference. These things are objectively, objectively um, morally wrong. And so Christianity uh, posits that our moral values flow out of God's character. God is good and loving and just. 
Therefore, we are to be also, and that means that hatred and greed and violence are morally wrong. And this goes back to Romans 2.15. God's law is written on our hearts, our own conscience and thoughts. Either accuse them or tell them they're doing right. There is an innate sense built into us as human beings, uh, to, to, to an inclination to know what is good and what is evil. Now, sometimes we actively oppose those, uh, our conscience, but that innate sense is there. And this is, um, this is really powerful. Let me, let me go through the, sort of the, the argument now for the, for the moral, moral uh, argument. First one is that if God does not exist, objective moral values don't exist. The second part is that objective moral values do exist. Therefore, God exists. And this is powerful, like I said, because again, often our, our students in, in, in university and in schools and society tend to believe both the premises. Our secular culture teaches us there is no objective right or wrong, just your truth, whatever you decide to do right or wrong for yourself. But the values of tolerance and fairness are so deeply instilled in our students they're desperately afraid of judging someone else. They think it's morally wrong to be intolerant or to judge someone else. And so they actually do act as though there are objective moral values. So you can ignore the, the evidence at the beginning of the universe, but you can't really ignore the question whether there are objective moral values and duties. Because we wake up every morning and function as though these are true. Um, when we say, how can a good God allow evil? We're, we're already implicitly saying that we understand there is good and evil. If there is no God, how can we say something's evil if we have no standard upon which to base that? So we could say, well, there's things as a society we've agreed aren't helpful for us, but we can't say something's objectively evil because another society may see that same act and think, no, that's good. We do that all the time. And so to actually recognize the evil in our world is actually not a hindrance to believing in God. It actually is a help in believing there is God because you think there is good and evil. Otherwise, why would you worry about it? Why would you have this innate sense of thinking something's morally wrong or not? Our final video is from Christian uh, speaker and author Ravi Zacharias. He was asked this question, why are you so afraid of subjective moral reasoning? Why can't we just all believe what we want to believe. Why have objective morals? So take a look at this last video with me. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Let's leave aside Christianity and historical examples for a second. All night you guys have been grappling with issues like morality and, you know, what is right, what is wrong, and meaning. But my question is simply, why are you so afraid of subjective moral reasoning? I mean, do you think that we're all just going to start raping and pillaging just because we don't have a book to tell us what to do. I mean, are you afraid of that? Like, I'm not, because that's not going to happen. And that, yeah, Nazis were bad, but there were Christian Nazis and there were atheist Nazis. So I don't see... What are you so afraid of? Do you lock your door at night? Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> You know, I hear what you're saying. Sounds very cavalier, though. My goodness. If we weren't afraid of all of this, we would not be in a national debt. 
The billions. China is secular. Sorry? China is secular. Sorry? China is secular. That's right. What about, what does that mean? I mean, they're not raping and pillaging, and neither are we. Oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my. Oh my. Have you read what happened during the Red Guards Rebellion? Have you read what happened during the Boxer Rebellion? Do you know who has killed more people in the 20th century than China and Russia? 60 million apiece? Wow. It makes the Holocaust seem tame. The 20th century became the bloodiest century in history. And the reason it became the bloodiest century in history I can see is you could just see the weapons of our warfare were piling up and there was no guiding principle to take us anywhere. Now, in a perfect world, yes, we don't need to be afraid. Have you seen what happens in our courts of law where people supposedly love each other and all that comes about in hate and vitriol and damage? I don't think the question is fairly stated as what have you, are you afraid of? I'm just saying it is basically unlivable. That's, I didn't conclude that. An atheist like Jean-Paul Sartre concluded it. We killed more people in the 20th century than the previous 19 put together. And your question is uh, what are we afraid of? The fact of the matter is if morality is purely subjective, then you have absolutely nothing from stopping anybody for being a subjective moralist to choose to just zing one through your forehead and say, that's my answer. You know, how, do you, how do you stop that? Obviously, you don't believe that's the way it should be. No, neither do I. So it's not a case of what am I afraid of. It's a case of the fact that if you're willing to say to me that uh, moral reasoning can be purely subjective, I just say to you, look out, you ain't seen nothing yet if everybody believed what you did. So subjective morality would be very good if we all wanted to be nice people and live around each other without any uh, fear of each other. But the reason you lock your doors and the reason we have our police and the reason we have our military and the reason we have our law courts is because when subjective morality becomes totally subjectivized, this is what happens in society. So it's a great idea but I hope nobody absorbs it. Thank you. We go on to the next one there. Thank you. So we've talked today about uh, three evidences for why we as Christians believe in God. Uh, we talked about uh, the beginning of the universe and what has a beginning has a cause. We talked about the fine-tuning of the universe. We can get into that more. Uh, there's a lot of, of great evidence and, and videos out there on that. The third thing was that apart from God, there can be no objective moral standards. So our experience, our science, our philosophy all point to the existence of an invisible God who fits the description from our scriptures as Jesus, as Yahweh. These are some, again, this is very quickly, I'm going over this, but these are some of the, some of the things that we can point to when someone says, well, why would you believe in God? What evidence do you have aside from your own personal feelings? You can say, well, the fine-tuning of the universe, the fact that we know the universe has a beginning and something outside of the universe therefore had to create it or bring it about in some way, and also the fact that if I punched you right now, you'd be upset with me. You know, it's just, There's objective morals here. Now here's, just pastorally, here's some tips for talking to people about these issues because this is, this is important stuff. If someone, if you're talking to someone and they doubt God, there's usually a good reason. 
often they've been hurt by, by someone who said they were a Christian or maybe was a Christian. They've maybe been offended by something someone in the church has said. Um, it's important to, to maybe help them realize that maybe some of the harm that was done in God's name or done in a religious circle uh, doesn't mean that that's what God would want. You know, there are imperfect people who are trying to follow God um, or not, who just say they are. And so we get hurt along the way. Um, and some of those deep faults are not from God. They're from broken people. So if someone doubts there's a reason, it's important for us to be quick to listen and slow to speak. We don't want to get up on our hobby horse and berate people for where they're at in life, but we want to listen with patience and with love and just engage people where they're at. But, but to, to help people realize um, there's a reasonableness to our faith. We're not just looking at a fairy tale that someone made up. This is not just legend that's a, a, adapted over time. This is based on historical evidence and based also in uh, cosmological and moral arguments as well. The Bible's helpful, but many people don't uh, accept the authority or truthfulness of the Bible, and so starting with some of these uh, other arguments can be helpful. I also remember this main point. Um, our discussions on these matters are not just about kind of winning, you know, winning the logic battle. Um, but there's a, there's a spiritual battle going on as well. And so as you engage with people, it's important to be praying, praying for God's wisdom, praying for um, the right words to, to speak, but also, you know, our loving people, even when they disagree with us, our choosing to love them, to be willing to pray with them, to um, seek the good for them to care for them, even when they uh, maybe are actively against us, speaks volumes. And that's actually the Christian way, is to love others and to even love our enemies. So love draws people. We want to point them with our words and our actions and our attitude towards love and truthfulness. But love draws people. Disagreement can drive people away. And so if we engage this stuff with a um, kind of an angry or disagreeing attitude, it's not going to hurt. It's not going to help them. It'll hurt them. But when we seek to engage people with love, we built a relationship where these kinds of conversations can happen that are done so in a loving way. They know that we care for them already. Um, that's, that's the motivation we want to have as believers. So uh, that wraps up our sermon. And, and I hope that that's been helpful as we tackle some of these tough questions. Um, that, that there's a reasonableness for our faith. And so this is kind of a basic sort of apologetics kind of series. Um, but let's pray together and let's invite God to give us opportunities to share our faith, to give us wisdom and love, to engage with our friends and family and neighbors who, uh, well, uh, both those who may know Christ and those who don't, that we want to shine forth his love and his goodness, especially during this time, this pandemic, where people are fearful and afraid and people are hungry for the truth um, and the love of God. So would you pray with me? Uh, Jesus, Thank you again for your great love for us. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you also, Lord, that the universe declares your goodness and your glory. Thank you that you've written your word in our hearts, that we have a, a desire to move towards goodness, even though we often fail at this. Our sin, our brokenness comes to the foreground so often. But Lord, you came. We're in Easter time. Jesus, we're celebrating your death and your resurrection, that you came uh, to set us free from the power of sin. And so today, Lord, I just pray over those who are watching, 
those who are participating in this service, that you would minister to our hearts. Lord, you would fill us with gratitude and joy for the salvation that we receive when we repent and believe in your name. Lord, I pray that as Christians, you would give us um, courage and love to be willing to share our faith with others. Lord, that it would alter our behavior in such a way that people would ask, what's the difference in your life? And we'd have opportunities to share. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't see uh, sharing our faith as a sort of um, arguing with people just for argument's sake, but that we would rely on you, Holy Spirit, to guide our thoughts and our actions. Lord, that at the end of the day, we would seek to love people well, just as you, Jesus, showed us how to love people well. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone watching who's been convicted, uh, who's been, um, Lord, you've been drawing them to yourself. The Holy Spirit's been drawing you. Um, Lord, I pray that you would help uh, them, cause them, Lord, to reach out to you today, uh, to repent of their sin, to lay and surrender their life down at your feet, Lord, and to choose you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, today we declare your goodness. We do choose you, Jesus. We pray you would guide us as a church and our families and our individual lives to live for you, to love our city and our world for you, Lord, in this time. And with the words you've taught us, we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Friends, love you so much. Thank you for joining us. Uh, appreciate you. Um, if uh, just in terms of announcements, again, we've got our services at 1030. Uh, prayer tonight at 730. You're welcome to join us. Bible study for anyone Wednesday nights at 730. Uh, we've had different people show up each time. It's been it's been fun. Um, and we jump in to dive deeper into the passage uh, of scripture and the topic for, for Sunday. So if you're interested more in this, we're going to be discussing it a little bit more um, on Wednesday. Brian, uh, Pastor Brian's putting on youth events on Tuesday and Fridays. Again, big thank you to those who are continuing to give and support the church. Know that we are um, praying for you. Those who have lost jobs are really kind of navigating this time. We're really praying for you. We've put together a, a congregational care plan so that we're trying to reach out to everybody each week and just touch base, see how you're doing. So you may hear from me. Velma, uh, Doug, Brian, Keith, um, you, you may hear from uh, Rob and Don are going to help out as well. So you may hear from some different people. We're kind of working through our phone list just to try to, get to connect, uh, make sure we're, we're caring well for each other. So if you get a phone call uh, from, from one of us, uh, you know it's coming. Um, yeah, and again, just thank you guys for, for caring, for continuing to give financially and, and to be praying and to be engaged in different ways. Really appreciate that. All that info on our events, how to give, e-transfers, and all of that's available on our website, dfgc.ca. Um, so if you need more info, feel free to, to check that out there. Before you go, let me send you off with the benediction. Children of God who are loved and forgiven, by our Lord Jesus Christ. May you see the glory of God's handiwork in creation and let that move your hearts to acknowledge the goodness 
of the Creator. May you sense the Spirit speaking to your soul about the goodness of God. May you navigate the shifting uh, world around us with grace and with truth. May you be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit and come deeper and deeper into grace and into a saving knowledge of who Jesus is. Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Bless you. Have a fantastic week. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.